Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and our classroom is officially in session. Welcome back to our classroom, folks. Hey, we are going to get into this today. My special guest is GC Fathery III, George Fathery III. If you don't know, you're about to know about the FinTech founder, social impact entrepreneur and attorney. And listen, I came across his work, read this article that was referred to me, but my friend and co-host for today said he'll see Munoz. Y'all already know him, so I ain't gonna say too much about my Mexican banker friend who's in Los Angeles, who's written 13 books and 550 essays, but who's counting? But GC Father Reed worked on this Bruce Beach case. I ain't know about this, people. But when I learned about this case, I said, I gotta have this guy on. And not only did he work on the Bruce's Beach case, which you are going to learn about here today, but he also led the rescue of Ebony and Jet from going into bankruptcy. Listen, folks, y'all know that's important for the culture. So we have somebody out here who's doing some amazing work, and you're going to learn a little bit about him today, but you're going to learn a lot about this Bruce's Beach case today and why this is important. Uh, not just to black folks, but to all folks. Why this is a wealth narrative that we should be talking about and looking at as a model for change in our society. With us today, GC Father Reed, welcome. Thanks so much, Roberto. Thanks, Sergio. Thank you guys for having me on. I'm fired up to be here. Man, well, it's it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. I've been doing a little bit of research and I've seen you on other platforms. I've read some articles. I'm extremely curious. And, you know, Sergio was the one who introduced me to your work. So thank you for doing so, Sergio. And I, I want to hear from you directly because I've read it, but I want to hear from the source. I first came across the work that you did with the Bruce's Cage by reading the Los Angeles Sentinel article. And it was it was encouraging because this is a rare victory, the first of its kind in this country. So salute to you. Can can you provide a brief summary of the case just so folks can learn a little bit about this before I go into detail with some of the questions and, and we could process that together? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. So for, for folks who haven't heard about it, Bruce's Beach refers to a piece of beachfront property in what is today the city of Manhattan Beach, which is a city uh, in Los Angeles County here in Southern California. Now the story starts about a hundred years ago. Um, in the early 1900s, a woman named Willa Bruce and her husband, Charles Bruce, uh, moved to LA County and they ended up buying a piece of property, beachfront property, um, on this beach in Manhattan Beach, and they opened a hospitality business. Now the business started very, started very humbly. It was a, a shack and, and Mrs. Bruce would serve sandwiches and you could get a soda um, and black folks would come and they'd, uh, they'd go to her business, they'd get a bite to eat and they'd go down and enjoy some time uh, at the sun and the sand. 
uh, in the ocean. Um, and the business uh, started taking off. Um, and in a couple of years, she had some money and she added a, a, a changing structure, a tent. She rented out bathing suits so black folks could come down. You rent a bathing suit, you get a sandwich, you go down to the beach, enjoy your day, and then you come back. Um, and and uh, the business uh, got more successful. And so in a few years, she was able to buy a second piece of land and she had enough money where she built a two-story brick building. And at the time, this was state-of-the-art. So the ground floor had about 30 changing rooms and then you'd go upstairs and there was a parlor and a dining room and um, you could go dancing and listen to music. And this was the spot for black folks in Southern California in the early 1920s. Um, resort became so popular that over time, other black families who would come and visit uh, Bruce's Beach Resort, they, they bought property in the city of Manhattan Beach. They built their homes in the city of Manhattan Beach. And so it was really a tremendous uh, success story to this black uh, couple, these entrepreneurs who in the early 1920s had this vision and built this. Now, unfortunately, not everybody was excited about the success of Bruce's Beach and, and all the black folks that were coming to town. And so pretty early on, and I've gone back and I've, I've read the newspaper articles and, and reviewed some letters from around the time. What you see is that pretty early on, a bunch of the white neighbors um, start feeling like this is going to threaten uh, their way of life in Manhattan Beach. And you, you read the newspaper articles, it talks about fear of the, the Negro invasion. And it talks about how the Negro invasion is going to ruin our way of life. And so what the Bruces and their patrons ended up facing was you know a string of uh harassment and intimidation you would you would come back uh from being at the beach and you'd find somebody would slash the tires to your car wow. they put up uh no parking signs all around uh, the area where the resort is so that the people think you know couldn't park conveniently one of the neighbors actually actually constructed a wooden fence that separated where the resort was from the water so if you wanted to go to the resort and go to the beach you had to walk like about a half a mile in either direction. Um, I read one story, Roberto, a group of men found an old, an old mattress and they soaked it in kerosene and they shoved it under the building. They tried to set it on fire to burn the building down. And what I'll say is in light of all of this harassment and intimidation and violence, um, the business just got more and more successful wow. <laughs> and people kept coming and it kept growing. Until finally, in 1923, under pressure from, from some of the neighbors and folks in the community, the Manhattan Beach City Council took the property using eminent domain. Eminent domain is a power that the government has to take privately owned property for a public use. And in this case, what the city said is, um, we need to build a city park. And the park's got to go right there, right where the Bruce's Beach building is. And so... Uh, in 1923, the city condemned the property. They instituted a, a lawsuit to take the property. The city was successful. When the city got the property, they immediately demolished the building. Um, and they also passed a number of laws that would make it illegal to open up another business along the beach. They wanted to make sure that the Bruces didn't just go a few hundred yards down the beach and open a new business. So as a result of that, the Bruce's basically lost everything. They left Manhattan Beach. Um, those other black families that I mentioned who had moved to the city and had built homes there, 
Um, they lost their property in that same imminent domain action. They were forced out of the city as well. And what I'll say is that to this very day, almost a hundred years later, no park was ever built on that property that was taken from the Bruce's. Um, it was a clear farce. Um, what I'll also say <clears throat> is that um, about three years ago, um, I got involved and I had heard about the story and we can talk about that. But as a result of about three years of hard work, not just from me, but I had a, a team of lawyers and we had other, um, there were elected officials and folks we work with. But as a result of that work, what I'm excited to say and proud to say is that a hundred years later, that land was returned to the great grandsons and the great, great grandsons of Willa and Charles Bruce. And that's the first time in US history that property has been returned to a black family after having been taken under those circumstances. That's amazing. That's amazing. My goodness, there's so much there. Thank you for providing that context. I, I, I felt an array of emotions in hearing you describe all of that. You know, I felt some anger and frustration when you described what happened to the Bruce's and how their property was taken away through eminent domain. And then I, I did feel some some joy and some vindication in hearing that the property was returned, albeit a hundred years later. You know, I'm definitely left with the curiosity about them. You know, did they go somewhere else and start a new business or, you know, were they just completely defeated after that? And I'm not asking you to respond to that question right now. These are just curiosities, curiosities that surfaced for me because I could see how that could be completely debilitating for, for a family. Right. You know, you work so hard to establish something. You have a good thing going on. It's you, you're you're seeing the fruit of it. And just like that, it can get taken away. And obviously, exactly. it, 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 there's a justice issue here, a huge justice issue. And, and look, we don't have this historical records. We don't have a lot of information about what the Bruce's did after they lost that property. I was able to find a. Um, uh, a foreclosure record. So it seems that when they lost their property in, in Manhattan Beach, they came back to live in the city of LA and had purchased a building. And what I saw is a foreclosure record where they lost that building for the inability to pay the property tax. So it leads me to believe that they they lost the family wealth. They lost the wealth that was created from Bruce's Beach and they likely, likely died in poverty. Man, man. Wow, tough. But it's a blessing that we're able to get that back into the hands of the family generations later. I'm wondering about the process of returning Bruce's Beach, how, how that process started. You you got into it a little bit, but from my research, I, I do recall that part of how this surfaced was that there was somebody, an advocate, who happened to learn about the, the Bruce family and and then through some of that advocacy work, it, it was covered in the LA Times and it came to your attention. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm mixing up the details a little bit, but perhaps you can elaborate a bit in terms of the, the process of returning Bruce's Beach and obviously your involvement in making it happen. Yeah, well, so look, this is an important part of the story, especially as we wrestle with with topics like restitution and reparations today, this is an important part of the story. It's like, how did we get this done? And look, this started really the genesis. It started a way that I think a lot of 
a lot of change starts, and that is it started with a story. Um, there was a, a local reporter uh, down in this in this area in the South Bay in Los Angeles County who had done research and discovered what had happened to the Bruces in the 1920s, and she ended up writing an article about it um, and getting the word out. Um, one of the people who read this article was um, was a single mother, African-American woman named Kavon Ward, who was living in the South Bay in 2020. And she read this article, and this was, this was after uh, the George Floyd murder. And this is when we, as a country, were kind of, you know, mourning and we were angry. And so Miss um, Ward read the article and, and it made her angry and it made her feel like she wanted to do something. And so she ended up organizing a, uh, a protest um, in the city of Manhattan Beach. And it was called Hashtag Justice for Bruce's Beach. Um, and so that got the word out more. Um, one of the people who read about the protest happening was uh, an elected official. Los Angeles County Supervisor Janice Hahn, who you know read the story and heard about the protest, and um, when she asked her staff, she said, "Well, who owns that property now? Who who owns that land?" Her staff said, "Supervisor, you own that property now. That property was taken by the city of Manhattan Beach. It was transferred to the state of California. And then the state of California transferred that property in the 1980s to Los Angeles County. So you own the property." And when Janice Hahn heard that, she said, well, if we own it, we ought to see if there's a way to give that property back. And then how I got involved was um, I've got a close friend. It's actually a mutual friend of, of Sergio's and mine who used to work at the Los Angeles Times, used to work for Los Angeles County. Um, she's a, uh, a very high powered, high impact uh, local publicist here. Her name's Lisa Richardson. And Lisa had heard about my work um, rescuing the Ebony and Jet Photography Archive out of bankruptcy and helping a group of foundations acquire that archive. And so when Lisa heard the story about Bruce's Beach, she reached out to me and she got me involved. Um, and once I got involved, um, I got a team at my law firm. We engaged with the county. We engaged with the family. And we worked together as a team to have that property returned. But I think the point I want to make is that this was not something that one person did. Um, this was something, you know, you had a reporter who covered the story. You had a community activist who, who kind of raised awareness. You had an elected official who demonstrated political leadership. You had a lawyer who was able to navigate and advocate for the family. This was a team effort. Uh, it's, it's great. And I, I love to hear... When the community comes together in that way, you, you love to hear stories like this because it demonstrates that there are still people out there with integrity. There are still people that that have a heart for doing the right thing. Right. You, you, when you talk about politicians, I'm not trying to paint all politicians in the same light, by the way. Uh, but when you talk about politicians for a lot of people, you know, it might make them react a particular way. And so, you know, hearing that somebody was able to come across the story, come across this information, draw the conclusion that, hey, you know, the right thing for us to do is to give that land back. I mean, again, this is not a common story. We know it's the first of its kind because there's only been one victory such as this. And so I think it's important to 
highlight these individuals that, as you have done so that people can leave with some sense of encouragement that, hey, while this is not common, there are still people out there doing the right thing. And that by taking some small steps, being an advocate, writing up a story, if you're a reporter, all right, not right. not not writing up rumors, uh, you know, not writing about meaningless things, but like let's write stories that matter. Let's let's write stories that help amplify the voices and experiences of people that are historically marginalized. Let's bring things to the light that need to be unearthed. And then let's figure out where the great lawyers such as GC Father E are at so we could make make it happen. Let's continue to reclaim, right? We need a lot of folks to, to reclaim what's rightfully theirs. And so proud of the work of all the individuals involved in that. And I think this, there, there are things that we can all learn. Obviously, this platform, our classroom, focused on education, focused on what's happening in terms of the intersection of an education society. And so I'm wondering, what can educators and students learn from the Bruce's Beach example? Yeah, so, you know, look, I'm going to take it back to the story. Um, to me, if you if you really think about well, what you know, what was the critical moment? What was the critical thing that happened that set these series of events into action? It really came back to that story. And when I think about the role for educators and students, what I think about is the important opportunity around narrative. And what we need is narrative busting, right? We've all seen that show. We've heard of that show, Myth Busting, right. where they go, Mythbusters, they go and they 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 dispel these myths or they or they prove these myths. We need narrative busting because what we've got is we've got a popular and prevailing narrative about the reason that things are the way they are today. Why we have such a pronounced and persisting racial wealth gap? Why black home ownership? trails white home ownership by about 30 points. And the prevailing narrative that we have is a narrative that has its origins and its roots in white supremacist anti-black racism. What the narrative says is that the reason things are the way they are today is because black folks have different priorities. Black folks have different uh, cultural values. Black folks uh, lack ambition. They lack a hard work ethic. Um, they've got different, you know, intellectual capacity. Mm. What's powerful about the Bruce's Beach story is it challenges that narrative and it shows us the real and the true reason that things are the way they are today. I want to mention something. If you look at the black population today in the city of Manhattan Beach, it is 0.5%. That's about the lowest percentage of any city in all of LA County. Wow. But that's not an that's not an accident that it's that low. Right. I mentioned that in 1923, not only did the city of Manhattan Beach take the Bruce's property, but they used eminent domain to take the property of every black family that was living in Manhattan Beach at the time. You could they made it clear that those families were not welcome. They made it clear that they did not want those families there. You can draw a straight line from 1923 and that imminent domain action to the 0.5% today. And so it's important that we correct that narrative because otherwise, without understanding the story, without understanding the history, 
you look at Manhattan Beach and you say, hey, how come there's no black people here? And it's like, well, this is an expensive area. And it's, you know, black people can't afford to live here. That's not the story. The story is that a hundred years ago, the city and its citizens engaged in a deliberate and systematic and systemic effort to get black people out of the city. And the results, the fruits of those efforts can be felt a hundred years later today. We gotta bust these narratives. We gotta change these stories. So Roberto, there's also a secondary narrative based around the same thing that George is talking about right now, which is, and George has mentioned it before and maybe he can enlighten us about it, which is the story of entrepreneurship, right? As you were listening to the story and you were hearing that things were just getting better and better and better, um, that uh, prompted, you know, some fear into the community, right? Um, but if you look at it from the perspective of, for example, the Hilton family, they started their business the exact same year, you know, and and look at their empire now today. And so you can go back and see how it actually happened, but you can also go into a sort of fantasy of how it could have happened for the Bruce family if they didn't hit these artificial um, limits to to their entrepreneurship. Wow. Wow. Man, that's yeah, that's a narrative buster. I mean, it makes me think about Black Wall Street. It, it makes 100%. me right. It makes me think 100%. about what could have been. 100%. We, we, we saw the potential. You, well, we didn't see it firsthand, but right. You read about it, you understand the firsthand accounts of, of folks who lived it. You're like, wow, the trajectory that Black Wall Street had. That's right. And what that could have been and the way that could have impacted generations of, of families um, and, and likely all, all across the United States, right? Because if, if you're doing well financially, if you have the means, you have the access, now you're not even just limited to to one place, right? Now you could spread your wings, and in in the case of the Bruce family, you know maybe they start moving all throughout California, you know, you yeah, maybe you they go about, beyond California. You think about think about what the Bruces and, and and Sergio has a good analogy talking about the Hilton family. And today, you know, I don't know. There's probably a, a few thousand Hilton hotels. The the Hilton business is worth about $40 billion. You think about what could have been if the Bruce's business success could have, um, you know, gone undisturbed, right? You think about, and, and I think about not just the wealth that would have been created for the Bruce's, think about the people that they would have employed, right? The black families they would have given jobs to. Think about the black families who would have visited there, been inspired to see these black entrepreneurs. Think about what they could have done with their wealth, right? Think about the elected officials who who they could have helped put into office. Think about the nonprofit, the charitable causes they would have supported. Here's what we got to do, though. We've got to stop, and this goes back to the narrative point and the narrative busting. We've got to stop thinking that Black Wall Street and Tulsa and Bruce's Beach were one-offs, mm. right? Were spectacular, were mm. remarkable. You know, we've got hundreds of these stories. I was reading, I'm reading a book right now, it's called Wilmington's Lie. It's about uh, town Wilmington, North Carolina, which was um, 
you know, uh, at the time it was a majority black city and the blacks in that city were, were affluent. They were bankers. They owned the newspaper. They collected the taxes. And what happened? There was a, um, the white supremacist led a race riot, um, in the early 1900s that forced all the blacks to leave town. You look at what happened in, in Overton, uh, Miami in Florida, right? This was a, Overton was, was basically, it was the Harlem of the South, they called it, right? There were hotels and theaters, and this is where, you know, Dizzy Gillespie and, and these performers and musicians would come and stay. It was a vibrant black business hub. But of course, when the state of Florida wants to build a freeway through, you know, what part of town do they pick? They ran that freeway straight through Overton, mm -hmm. right? The population of Overton went from about, about 40,000 to about 8,000 decimated the, the city, decimated the community, the neighborhood, um, destroyed the wealth and the businesses that have been built there. We've got to stop thinking that Black Wall Street was a one-off, that Bruce's Beach was a one-off, that Overton was a one-off. This happened, you know, really um, after slavery for the next 100 years, right? 100, 150 years that Black people have been deprived, systematically deprived um, through government actions uh, of the right to build wealth, create wealth and to pass that wealth on to build intergenerational wealth. That's good. That's good, GC. It it makes me wonder though. So I'm 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 listening to you use these terms that folks come after me and my platform and my business over, you know. Uh terms such as white supremacists, for example, they don't land well for some people. And it it makes me wonder how how have you been able to navigate the spaces that you're in as an attorney, high profile, you know, handling some different stuff. You're 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 in interesting interesting spaces, I gather. How have you? You're speaking quite boldly. Some would argue that you're speaking boldly, right? And some people don't want to use this language at all because of the resistance, because of the pushback, because of the hate, so on and so forth. And so how have you been able to navigate this? And the reason I'm asking you this is because I think it's important for our, our listeners, especially those who might be in the neutral zone, to, to be able to receive some wisdom, receive some counsel, receive some encouragement from someone like you in terms of like, yeah, I'm an attorney. I deal in a lot of different spaces with a lot of different types of people. And I'm going to call this what it is because that's what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. You know, look, this is, you're right to say this is a, this is a sensitive topic. This is a topic that makes uh, folks feel uncomfortable and not at ease. But we gotta, we gotta start being straight with each other. Right. And we got to realize that if we're serious about, you know, moving forward, as a country and if we're serious about achieving this greatness that that we're capable of um we got to do it with with intellectual honesty right we got and 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 when i say that i'm not talking about blame right there's a big difference between kind of correcting the narrative and understanding why things are the way they are today and how we got here and 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 blame right that's not what i'm trying to do but if you look you know you say people are, are are uncomfortable when you use terms like white supremacy that was the reality in 1923 that was the reality in the 
early 1900s. You, you go and you read the newspaper accounts and you read the lawsuits and you read kind of the views that people were expounding of why they didn't want black people there, why they didn't want black people elected to public office. And it was white supremacy and they called it white supremacy. Mm. And so this idea that we're going to be able to move forward and realize the goals and ambitions of our democracy while trying to hide from the history or, or not educating and appreciating the history, I think we've, we've seen where that's gotten us. And it's gotten us you know, where we are today, which is we're stuck. What I'm interested in is moving forward. And I think the way we do that is by correcting the narrative, is by educating folks and making people understand and, and look i'm not here's what i'm not saying my narrative is is always the right one but we need competing narratives and that's where the truth's going to come from but we've got to expose people to to what happened and how could what happened 100 years ago explain where we are today and why things are how they are today and until we're we're willing to be kind of intellectually honest with each other around that i think we're stuck I like that. I might get a T-shirt that says hashtag narrative busting. There we go. We should start a show. <laughs> Sadie, you, you taking notes? <laughs> I am. But, you know, you you also, I think, should maybe tell the audience, you know, George comes with a lot of validation, right? Like he's educated at Harvard. He's um, working at big law, right? Which, which is not easy, and it's not um, it's not something that should be taken lightly because his his work with big law allowed him the three years to be able to dedicate to this particular pro bono case, right? And and he's spoken in front of legislatures and like. He, he is the type of character that if you start to ask him questions, he's actually going to respond to those questions with, with a, a very extreme intellectual capacity. And so um, oftentimes, and, and I hear what you're saying, Roberto, I, I get this. Uh, because I deal with with white folk um, from the Mexican perspective, right, where they have their opinions about Mexico and no one's going to change their opinions about Mexico, regardless of whether there's facts about Mexico that they haven't heard. Um, but like if if you can't answer their questions or if you get heated about their questions or, you know, if, if it turns into a Jerry Springer show, then um, it, it becomes a lost opportunity. And, and George has the capacity to not let it go in that direction because of his experience. That's great. That's great. Yeah, we're definitely not doing Jerry Spring around here. So um, maintaining the guardrails. But I, I, I'm going to go to the fun part of the interview, which is if you had the opportunity to have lunch with anybody that are alive, who would it be and why? I know we're going long, but I got, I tried, I tried to pick just one. I couldn't. So, so my lunch is going to be table for three. Cause we had three of us there. Um, Bob Marley's been on my list forever, right? Hey. Since I was a boy, Bob Marley. I remember the first time 
So I'm, you know, I'm biracial background. My my mom's Polish American, my dad's African American. I remember the first time I learned that Bob Marley was biracial. I was like, yes, that's another <laughs> one. Like I really kind of felt validated. You felt the firm. You felt the firm, GC. Yeah. Here's what I love about uh, about Bob Marley is the world that he came up in was filled with uh, racism and corruption and violence and oppression and his message remained one of peace and love and brotherhood and sisterhood and if i could have lunch with bob i would want to understand how you know how he did that and how he managed to channel and not just channel because he's not singing about it he's living it so bob marley's at the table and then the 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 other seat goes to uh, my favorite artist, Kerry uh, James Marshall. Kerry James Marshall is a Chicago-based uh, uh, painter. He uh, was actually born in Birmingham, Alabama, and then lived in Los Angeles for a while. But he's been in Chicago. A brilliant painter um, uh, depicts uh, you know black people in in different aspects uh, of life and. What I'll share about about Kerry James Marshall is, you know, when he was a boy, what I understand is he got a he got a bus pass and he went to Los Angeles County Museum of Art. It was on the on the bus route between his home and his school. So he would go to LACMA and walk around. And what he realized was that nobody on the walls um, looked like him, um, both in the subjects or the painters. And. At that point, he he made himself a promise and the promise he made himself was that he was going to dedicate his life to changing that he was going to dedicate his life to changing the art canon and making it have people that look like him of work that was made by people that look like him um, and he's probably 13 when he makes this commitment to himself um and lo and behold he's done that Kerry james marshall has changed the art canon He's put black faces, black images uh, in the art canon. He's put black artists in the art canon. And so I'm just, I'm so inspired by his um, identification of a problem and then his personal promise and commitment to basically achieve a level of, of excellence where he would demand a seat at that table. So those are my two. That's my lunch. You're welcome to come, both of you guys. <laughs> Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Man, that's great. That's great. So for, for those that are listening, what is a message of encouragement you want to offer them? Yeah. Yeah. So here's my message, right? Um, my message is find what it is that you care about right? Find what it is that you care about, right? For me, it was, it was this, uh, you know, this black justice for Carrie James. It was, you know, have an art in the museum of folks that look like him. Find what it is that you care about, right? That's number one. Number two, become excellent, right? Become excellent at that. And then number three, find your role to make a change. And I'll go back to where we started which is, you know, how did, how, did, how, how did Bruce's beach start? How did this land get back? And remember, um, it didn't start with a lawyer. It didn't start with a civil rights lawyer. It started with um, a reporter, someone who 
early on said they wanted to tell stories. And what did they do? They went to school, they got a job, they became excellent at that and they found their role. And then it was a community organizer, right? Someone who decided they want to advocate for change. They want to organize communities. They became excellent at that. An elected official, right? Someone who wanted to run for office um, and wanted to change people's lives. She became excellent at that. She found her role. And finally, an attorney, um, you know, someone who'd gone to school and studied and worked at big firms and developed skills and got experience and found my role. So, so my message of encouragement are those three things. Figure out what you care about, go and get excellent at that, and then find your role and make a difference. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's something we can embrace. That's something folks can apply. That's something we could put up on the vision board and go attack. That's great. Thank you very much. GC, Fathery the Third, where can folks follow you if they need a lawyer to work on their case? If, if they want to learn more about Bruce's Beach, if, if they just want to see what's going on in the world of GC, is there somewhere where folks can follow you? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on LinkedIn, George Father at LinkedIn, and I try to I try to get on there weekly and I try to um, do some narrative busting. Um, check out, uh, I got a post there that talks about reparations and, and whether you think, somebody asked me if I thought the U.S., would ever pay reparations for slavery. I think my answer might surprise a lot of folks listening. So check me out on LinkedIn. And then I'm also at georgefathery.com. www.georgefathery.com is my is my site. So thanks for the opportunity, Sergio and, and Roberto. Thank you guys. And thanks for the listeners. Oh man, thank you for dropping these gems, for helping us learn more about Bruce's Beach, but, but also just widening our perspective in, in terms of what this can look like when we go and reclaim, when when we work in conjunction with other change agents, when we do the things that, that you mentioned that we should do, right? When we find what it is that, that we care about and become excellent at it and find our role and make change. And so I'm full of encouragement by, by what you shared with us and looking forward to hearing As always, more about your engagement in our classroom is greatly appreciated. Be sure to subscribe, rate the show, and write a review. Finally, for resources to help you understand the intersection of race, bias, education, and society, go to multiculturalclassroom.com. Peace and love from your host, Roberto Germán.